I invite you this morning to turn to Song of Solomon, Song of Solomon chapter 4. Last week we mentioned that we intend to bring another message that relates to uh, a biblical perspective of the elderly and our responsibility of care and so on. Well, we'll come back to that next Lord's Day, God willing. But for a considerable period of time, pretty much since we arrived here, we have taken the Communion Sundays to consider the Song of Solomon. Now, when we were in Psalm 51, we just stayed there. But we come back to look again at this book as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Table and I trust the Lord will bless it to us. It's one of those books that often is overlooked. It, uh, its profit is more hidden, maybe we could say. It's one thing for John to record in Revelation that these things are written in such a way that they should be a blessing. Um, blessed is he that reads and understands. Well, it's easy to say that sometimes, but as in the case of Revelation, so in the Song of Solomon, there's a blessing, but it just maybe takes more work to see it. But as we come to it this morning, I trust it will be that blessing that I believe it has been in past occasions, and that the Lord will use it to elevate our hearts towards Himself as we, in a short time, sit at the Lord's table. Song of Solomon, chapter 4. We'll take time to read from verse 1. Our attention will be on the latter verses of the chapter. But let's read from verse 1. Behold, thou art fair, my love. Behold, thou art fair. Thou hast dove's eyes within thy locks, Thy hair is as a flock of goats that appear from Mount Gilead. Thy teeth are like a flock of sheep that are even shorn, which came up from the washing. Rob every one bear twins, and none is barren among them. Thy lips are like a thread of scarlet, and thy speech is comely. Thy temples are like a piece of a pomegranate within thy locks. Thy neck is like the tower of David builded for an armory, whereon there hang a thousand bucklers, all shields of mighty men. Thy two breasts are like two young roes that are twins, which feed among the lilies, until the day break and the shadows flee away. I will get me to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. Thou art all fair, my love, there is no spot in thee. Come with me from Lebanon, my spouse, with me from Lebanon. Look from the top of Amna, from the top of Shinar and Hermon, from the lions' dens, from the mountains of the leopards. Thou hast ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. Thou hast ravished my heart with one of thine eyes, with one chain of thy neck. How fair is thy love, my sister, my spouse. How much better is thy love than wine, and the smell of thine ointments than all spices. Thy lips, O my spouse, drop as the honeycomb. Honey and milk are under thy tongue, and the smell of thy garments is like the smell of Lebanon. A garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse, a spring shut up, a fountain sealed. Thy plants are an orchard of pomegranates, with pleasant fruits, camphor, with spikenard, spikenard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, with all the chief spices, a fountain of gardens, a well of living waters and streams from Lebanon. Awake, O north wind, and come, thou south, Blow upon my garden, that the spices thereof may flow out. 
Let my beloved come into his garden and eat his pleasant fruits. Amen. Ending our reading there at the end of the chapter. Let's still our hearts in prayer, beloved. Let's bow before the Lord, seek his face, and look for that sweet help of heaven as we consider the word. Lord, we need Thee to breathe on us. Breathe on me, breath of God. Fill me with life anew. That I may love what Thou dost love and do what Thou wouldst do. Oh, breathe on us, Lord. How many of our days, our weeks, our months are spent without the breezes of heaven? How much of our time is empty and devoid of the sweet presence of God? How we thank Thee that Thou hast appointed a table for us. Not because thou dost need it, but because we need it. We need to remember. We need to be helped. We need to recall to our remembrance that God is a God of love and sent his Son to be our Savior so that we might know him him to know his life eternal. Give help to the preacher. Give help to all thy people. As we consider thy word this morning, condescend, we pray. Help us and extend thy kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> As I mentioned already, beloved, <clears throat> excuse me, It has been some time since we have considered this book. And yet when we come back to it, as I did this past week, I'm exhilarated by the truths that are contained here designed to help us understand more of what we have in Christ. That's how we take this book. We don't lift it out of the canon, as so many do. So many who would acknowledge that the message of each book of the Bible has foundationally a redemptive message, a message that is purposed to help us understand who God is and what God has done. It is boggling, therefore, for such who would profess that to then turn to the Song of Solomon and simply see it as a handbook or a guide for relationships, human relationships, and marriage, and so on. Now, certainly it may teach us things relating to that. But it does so as a secondary teaching. The primary teaching of the Song of Solomon is to give us insight into what the love of God looks like. It is one thing to read John chapter 3, verse 16, It is another thing to understand it. And it is a lifelong subject to try to understand the love of God in Christ. You cannot exhaust this subject. You can't even begin to exhaust it. You will struggle the entirety of your life to comprehend the love of God in Christ. And so, as old and mature as we get, we don't ever forget or move away from the simple chorus, the simple statement, isn't the love of Jesus something wonderful? Wonderful it is to me. Wonderful. Thinking of that word, aright, that it leaves me in a state of wonder. It results in me being full of wonder. 
And all the life that I live, I will be in a condition of wonder at the love that God has for me. The Song of Solomon is one part of Scripture where the Lord gives a little more insight into His love. March was the last time where we looked at this portion. We have had two messages in chapter 4 already. We have considered the beauty of the bride in verses 1 through 7. She has a beauty. The opening statement of chapter 4 proclaims that, Thou art fair, my love. Behold, thou art fair. This is the beauty of the bride. The bridegroom sees that beauty, acknowledges that beauty, publicly affirms that beauty. And this is Christ testifying to the beauty of his church. We noted then last time Christ's feelings for the church in verses 8 through 11. And he speaks in such a way, you can see, especially there in verse 9, Thou hast ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. Thou hast ravished my heart with one of thine eyes, with one chain of thy neck. But the love that Christ has for his church is not a reluctant love. His feelings for the church are free and flowing and abundant and immeasurable. You don't have to convince him to love you today. If you did, you would fail miserably. (laughs) He loves you. And he loves you without hindrance, without discouragement. I was amazed by that. That he loves my favorite verse, if I was to be pinned to one, I think I've confessed this before, Jude verse four, 24, pardon me, that he will present us faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. <laughs> no, no, he doesn't, he doesn't present us with reluctance or within his heart feeling all these feelings of, of resentment. He won't bring you into glory in such a way that he'll make you feel like you don't really deserve to be there. Though we don't deserve to be there, he will bring us in in such a way that you will be made to feel like you do belong there. So he brings you in with exceeding joy. Exceeding joy, like there's nothing that brings more joy to Christ than to welcome you into glory, because you're His. You belong to Him. But those affections are not uniquely felt in heaven on His side. Our affections will be elevated one day. Our affections will rise. We will love Him as we have never loved Him before. But His affections today are what they will always be. So you read verses 8 through 11, he feels, oh, how he feels for his people. We come then to verses 12 and following, and we want to consider these verses under the title I have given, The Church as the Lord's Garden in the World. The Church as the Lord's Garden in the World. We come to verse 12. A garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse, this sister, spouse. We've dealt with this already. It's echoed through the previous part of the the passage. It just relates that that relationship that there is. There's There's a marriage here. There's a relationship. The idea of sister, we may not use it in that term in these days, but they would have in those days. And it does reflect something wonderful about the standing of the church before Christ as her elder brother. But regardless, a garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse, a spring shut up, a fountain sealed, and so on. I want us to see first, the church is protected. The church is protected. That's what verse 12 shows us as he speaks of his, the sister, the spouse, the bride, in other words. He says, the bride is a garden enclosed, 
a garden enclosed or a garden barred. Now, coming across the word garden in the Bible is not unique to the Song of Solomon. We have it in other places, and I wouldn't have to tell you where they all are found. I'm sure you can think of some of them. Some of the most significant events in history, not just biblical history, but history. The entire experience of of mankind has taken place in a garden. We can think first and foremost that it was in a garden where we have the entrance of death. In Genesis 2, verses 8 and 9, the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. There He put the man whom He had formed, the tree of life also, in the midst of the garden. Man is placed in a garden in the beginning. And it is there in that garden where we find the rebellion. We find the departure from God. We find what we call the fall. So as we are well aware, the entrance of death comes in a garden. But not only the entrance of death in a garden, the promise of life. The promise of life is in a garden. And I don't just mean what God said on that occasion, that the seed of the woman shall bruise the head of the serpent. That's all happening within Eden. I'm looking forward. I'm looking to John chapter 19 and verse 41, where we're told, now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new sepulcher, wherein was never man yet laid. So we have, in one sense, a garden where death enters. And we are told of another garden where life enters. Where the Son of God lays down His life and would then, according to the Scriptures, rise from the dead. There where the Savior died was a garden. There where all eyes were fixed and transfixed on that cross. Nearby was a garden where his body was to be laid, and where he would, on the third day, rise from the dead in a garden. You will remember, of course, Mary as well, where when she goes that first Lord's Day morning and runs there and there's no body, she lingers around that garden. And when she hears the voice of Jesus Christ, initially thinks it was the gardener. Gardens play a part of helping us understand things. Indeed, every year, with the passing of the seasons, our gardens are places of life and death. And so we see the changes every year. You will begin to notice that your grass is going to not be needing to be mowed as often now, as things cool off and so on, and the grass. I guess it depends what type of grass you have, but most people's grass around here tends to go dormant in winter. And then spring comes round. Things come to life again. So even there, as we, as we look at the world, we see, we see in our own gardens, we might say, life and death. When we go to weed, it reminds us, Adam... <laughs> What were you thinking? Thorns and thistles grow up to cause us to experience the sweat of our brows. We we try just to maintain what we have created. We look forward for the growth, don't we? We look forward then to the recovery for life to come in in the springtime. Well, the church then is depicted as being a garden. A garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse. As we think of the church protected, first of all, note, she is protected by means of a claim to her. She is protected by means of a claim to her. As the bride is described as a garden, it brings to her mind what we understand a garden to be. A garden is a place, it is a location, it is a property that belongs to someone. You don't see a garden and think it doesn't belong to anyone. You see a garden and you know this belongs to someone. Whether it be by the walls that are built around it, or by the produce that's found within it, or by the shaping of it as it is tended to and cared for, gardens proclaim in many ways the fact that it belongs to someone. 
when we were young, younger, <laughs> but very much younger, one of the things sometimes we would do was run through people's gardens. And we knew very well we were in places where we should not have been. It wasn't like, oops, I didn't realize this part, this property belonged to you. We knew. It had its hedges, it had other elements that would remind us of the fact that this is private property. It's not just some part of the public area. It is privately owned. Whenever the bride is described as a garden, that's one of the truths that we understand. A garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse. She belongs to someone. She belongs to the Lord. The Lord takes claim of his bride. He is not ashamed of her. This is what we read in Hebrews, isn't it? He is not ashamed to call us brethren. He is not ashamed to identify with us. And he is not ashamed to say they are mine. Now, if we rightly understand who God is and the magnitude of the glory and splendor of the Son of God, we should be marveled by the fact that he lays claim to us and says, they're mine. Because our understanding of this ownership is not just in terms of the Creator's ownership of the creation. Certainly that is true. But our understanding of this is the redemptive ownership, as reflected in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, that we are bought with a price. The precious blood of Jesus Christ. We are bought. We belong afresh to God. There is an extra added understanding that every Christian must grasp that I don't belong to myself. I belong to God. And of course, in 1 Corinthians, the apostles' intention with that is to drive them into a certain way of living. You don't belong to yourself. Remember that. Live your life as one that doesn't belong to yourself, but you belong to God. That's one way of looking at it. That's the challenge of it. But the comfort of it on the other side is the fact, yes, I belong to Him. I don't belong to the devil. I don't belong to the world. I don't belong to myself. I belong to God. He takes ownership of me, of me, insignificant me. He says, you belong to me. So that's what we see in verse 12, isn't it? A garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse. Metaphoric language. This is who she is. She is a garden. But not only do we see that she is protected by means of a claim on her, but she is protected by means of a curb around her. By means of a curb around her. Because the language, of course, indicates that the garden is enclosed or barred. There is a wall or some kind of perimeter placed around this piece of property. The Lord has always fenced off His people from the world around them. He has done that in different ways in different times, but it is a common theme through Scripture. He fences off His people. Sometimes it is by driving away the evil, other times it is by cutting off His people. Sometimes both. So Cain and his rebellion is, is driven off. But Israel then are, are enclosed. They are gathered in. The Lord then, as he makes a claim to his bride, expresses her as being shut off from the rest of the world. That his ownership of her is such that he is protective of her. And he put, puts walls, barriers, hindrances to, to prevent us from being where we shouldn't be and preventing others being where they ought not to be. So she is protected by means of a curb around her, fencing off the rest of the world that doesn't belong to him in this way. We can think of this in a couple of ways. First, his sovereign rule over his enemies is a curb. His sovereign rule over her enemies is a curb. He has sovereign rule over the enemies of his people. 
And this is, again, part of the comfort that we receive by belonging to him. For example, in Psalm 3, verse 3, But thou, O Lord, art a shield for me. You're a shield for me. Like, so, in, in Song of Solomon 4, we're thinking of a, like a wall or a hedge, some kind of barrier. But in other descriptive language, the psalmist says, the Lord is a shield. But it's the same concept, isn't it? That God is putting, putting a barrier between the Lord's people and the rest of the world. The psalmist goes on to say in Psalm 3 and verse 6, I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people that have set themselves against me round about. I have no need to fear because when God puts a perimeter or a wall or a division between me and the world, nothing can pass. He is sovereign in controlling this. Psalm 121 verse 8, The Lord shall preserve your going out and your coming in from this time forth and even forevermore. In all of our movements, He preserves. We can shift around in life, but He preserves every one of His people. He preserves His church, and He exercises His sovereign rule over her enemies. So we don't find in the Word of God needless fear. Whether it be Old Testament or New, when the Lord's people are facing the enemies that they have, they never need be afraid. So we don't find Israel needing to fear, do we? At times we find her afraid, but we never find her needing to fear. And so Joshua and Caleb, as they look at the giants in the land, they, they, they know it doesn't matter. Why, why would we be afraid? Why would we stop now? Why? Do you realize what what's just happened? We've been brought out of Egypt. Certainly the Lord will go before us. It doesn't matter how high their walls are, how large their stature may be. It doesn't matter. If He says to go, we go, we go fearlessly. And the same for the New Testament church. When we, when we look at the apostles, they, they didn't go and look at Rome and think, you know, we can, we, can stick, we can stick to the country areas, but let us not upset things in Rome because that's too dangerous. And we have no political power. We have no influence. The powers within Rome, if they start to take issue with our message, which they will, then, then we'll fear for our lives. So, so let's not go there. Is that how they thought? No, not for a second. They entered into Ephesus, Corinth, Rome, wherever, fearlessly. At times they were overcome by fear, but they continued anyway. The Lord would remind them, don't be afraid, Paul. Don't be afraid, but speak and hold not your peace. I am with you. I am with thee. No man shall set on thee to hurt thee. I have sovereign power here. I am in control of the enemies that you see all around you. It doesn't matter. Child of God, if you face enemies, whether in the workplace or in the community, or you look at America today and you see the rising tide of enemies against the church, never be afraid. You have no reason to fear. There is not one syllable in the Word of God that would encourage you to be very afraid of those who are the enemies of Christ. No. So when He makes us to be a garden, He encloses us. Part of the benefit of that is the assurance that He makes a curb that protects us, that He, where he sovereignly protects us from our enemies. His sovereign rule over her enemies is a curb. His sanctifying grace over her sins is a curb. So the first, of course, is the problems without. The second is the problems within, sanctifying grace over her sins. Part of the whole idea of curbing her and setting a wall is, is to keep her fruitful and to preserve the, 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 the pollination, we might say, of worldly things, weeds and things that don't belong, he curbs her to stop the pollination of things that ought not to belong in the believer's life. So he, he is always improving on our holiness by his Spirit. And though we walk in holiness with a limp like Jacob, yet we endeavor to walk in it nonetheless, don't we? We're the Lord's people. We want to be a garden enclosed. We want to keep out those polluting influences of the world. We're aware of, of their deception. We're aware of their, their allurement. To, uh, we don't even want to see them. And there are measures at times that we take even for ourselves where we try to, we try to block out even seeing that which might corrupt our hearts, and rightly so. 
God's Spirit works in our lives, conforming us more and more into the image of Christ, Romans 8. And the Lord therefore takes... He has us as a garden where He protects us, not just from the enemies without, but the enemies within. He gives us sanctifying grace, and we'll see more of this in just a moment, but He gives us sanctifying grace to to keep out those things that don't belong. Why? Ephesians 2 verse 10, we are His workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So He's working in us, and He is driving out the bad and replacing it with the good, the good works, the things that He has ordained that we should walk in. Now this is an ongoing battle, trying to be what we ought to be, but it's it's one he promises he will not give up in helping us with. So, verse 12 again. A garden encloses my sister and my spouse. She is protected, church. But before we move on, we should remember that while the visible church reflects the walled garden, it does not do so infallibly. The, the, the body of Christ, the people of God who come together, reflect this. Reflect a walled garden. I mean, it's very visible right now. We're kind of, even in the architecture of our assembly, we, we, we have kept out or we endeavor to keep out the world. And it's not, that's not really our intent by our assembly in this fashion. But, but, but we can see the visible representation whenever God's people congregate in a particular locality. When they're pulled together to be in one location, when you're come together, to use the New Testament, you're come together, you, you come together, and inevitably what happens when you come together is others don't come together, and they're elsewhere. So the visible church reflects the walled garden, but it does not do so infallibly. And the reason I point this out is to remind you that there are times due to apostasy when the Lord Himself will break down that wall, the visible wall. And so you have it in 587 BC when Nebuchadnezzar comes in because of the apostasy of the Jews, and the walls are destroyed. You have it again in AD 70 when this time it's the Roman armies come in and they destroy... This, this was a re- visible representation of, of where the Lord's people are and, and God Himself turns on them and destroys the walls. But as you read through the language of the prophets or the New Testament, there's still a people. <laughs> and so the challenge that comes to everyone this morning is, am I merely a part of what is visibly going on here or am I a part of the invisible? Do I belong to Christ? Is He mine? Am I as part of this garden enclosed, cut off from the world, brought into Christ? The church is protected. Secondly, the church is also productive. The church is productive. Verse 13, Thy plants... Are an orchard of pomegranates with pleasant fruits, camphor with spikenard, spikenard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, with all the chief spices. A fountain of gardens, a well of living waters, and streams from Lebanon. The church is productive, like a garden ought to be. A garden should be productive. If you didn't intend it to be productive, what was the point in cutting it off from the rest of the wilderness? (laughs) It's cut off in order that it might be productive in its own particular way, regardless of whatever else is going on outside the walls. Note here the sources of our productivity. The sources of our productivity. In verses 12 and 15, he speaks of a spring shut up, a fountain sealed, Verse 15, a well of living waters and streams from Lebanon. You have a spring, you have a fountain, you have a well, you have streams. I don't need to spend any time in helping you see the emphasis here upon those sources of water. There is 
language here, terms that are built upon terms to describe the flow of water into the garden or out from the garden that result in her productivity. Water is a necessary part of the productivity of a garden. (laughs) I don't need to tell you that. You don't give your garden water, it won't last very long, for it looks like something that's wilting and dying. But note, there is a source for her personally to be productive. There is a source for her personally to be productive. A spring and fountain, verse 12. Here it is more focused upon her. It says of these sources of water, a spring shut up, a fountain sealed. What is meant by this? I can't be dogmatic. Certainly, however, there seems to be the idea that these are hidden sources of water. At least that's how some take it. But I think there's more to it than that. I think the likely sense is that they have been sealed and shut. Something has been done to, again, protect them from outside polluting influences. There's been some kind of engineering going on here so that they're not just existing naturally, but they are shut up or sealed in such a way to control the stream of water. There's a protection here so that the water is enclosed. It's not, it doesn't have a purpose of benefiting the outside world. Its focus is upon the garden. That's the purpose of the waters in verse 12. And what that reminds us of, beloved, is the life of the Spirit. I don't need to tell you that the Spirit is often described as being like water. In John chapter 4, when Jesus addresses the woman at the well, the woman of Samaria, in John 4, 14, we read, Whosoever drinketh of the water that I uh, give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. So there's water that Christ gives. Now, it's not explicit there, but when you go on into John chapter 7, verse 38 and 39, where Christ is preaching on the last day of the feast, we read, He that believeth in me, as the Scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. So, so water is used to signify spiritual life. It's to signify the activity of the Holy Spirit within the life of of, well, one who becomes a believer. And so the invitation to the woman at the well is, look, you need to drink of this water. You drink of the water I give, you'll never thirst again. There will be an enclosed fountain in your soul. You understand? There will be an everlasting source of life that will be within you. This experience of water will not be to feed others at this point. This is what we're thinking of. It's an enclosed fountain. It's sealed up. It's designed to be locked into you. You could go into now, and I will not, but just to mention it, you could start dealing with the fact that once you're saved, you're always saved. Once the Spirit of God comes into your heart, He comes in never to leave again. That when the Holy Spirit takes hold of your life, He does so with a sense of permanence. That when one is born again, He is born again. You can't undo the the birth. The birth has taken place. It is recorded in heaven. It is experienced in the life. And the Spirit of God comes into the heart and seals to the Christian a sense that they belong to God forever. These are the inner joys of the bride's spiritual life. Since she is a garden, she needs a source of of joy. And this joy is found by the Spirit's work within her life. This spring shut up, this fountain sealed, these, these sources of water that are particular to her for her benefit. This is the indwelling Spirit, beloved. Do you have this? Do you have the Holy Spirit in your life? The Holy Spirit is not something to be experienced once a week or once a month or every so often or we come to church at Easter or at Christmas to get some kind of feeling of of, of God in our lives. The Holy Spirit is an ongoing experience for every child of God. He shuts in to satisfy the soul daily, to be as the Lord was saying to the woman at the well, 
Look, when I give this water, when I give the Spirit, it will be in you a well of water springing up into everlasting life. You will never thirst again. Your aspirations for approval within your community, your desire to be loved and go from one relationship to the other, only to find that it fails to satisfy, all of that, all of that can be dealt with and removed forever as you find in yourself this fountain sealed, a spring shut up, everlasting life by the Spirit in the life of every believer. So they, they have joy. Jesus says to his disciples in John 15 verse 11, These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. And you will remember that John 14 and 15 and 16 have much emphasis upon the Spirit's work in their life, the Comforter as he works with them and in them. And so part of the benefit of the Comforter's work in the believer's life is that the joy of Christ might remain in you. Your joy might be full. Oh, full! <laughs> is your joy full, Christian? Is it? Let's take a moment and think about it. Is your joy full? Because Jesus intends it to be. For every one of you. And so you can look at Peter and James and John and Andrew and Simon. Oh, you can look at them all. It didn't matter of the differences of their experience, the hardship of their life, the journey that was still ahead of them, or the present experiences that they may find, of, find themselves in. He can say all this. He can promise. He can assure them, I'm speaking these things. What's he speaking about? As I've said already, it's great emphasis on the Spirit's work. That my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. So we go through life and we react to the circumstances of our life in such a way where we get robbed of this joy. And that is never the intention. The fountain of the Spirit in your heart is sealed and shut up. The only reason for you to not know this joy is by something you decide in your own mind and heart. It's not, it's not to do with the Lord. I find nowhere where he gives permission for the world to come in and rob the people of God of their joy. Quite the opposite, in fact. Apostles emphasize, Paul particularly, rejoice, always. And in case you didn't hear me the first time, again I say, rejoice. Or those that Peter writes to that are facing the world's hardship and repulsion and hatred, Rejoice, Peter says. Don't just rejoice. Be exceeding glad. <laughs> and what are they building on? What are they building on? The promise of God. The words of the Lord Jesus, as well as many other passages, but especially the language of the Lord Jesus. You belong to me, and I have put a fountain of life in you. And no one has any right to take it away. Can't touch it. Can't get near it. Have no permission to remove it. So this enables us then to be personally productive, whatever we're going through. The Christian with this inner life, this fountain sealed, this spring shut up, is able to exist no matter what's going on outside the garden. So the world could be falling apart. 
The economy could collapse. And Christ sees his bride as a garden walled from all of that with a fountain, a spring exclusively there to provide them joy even though the world seems to be falling apart. Now these are fundamental truths. Most of you know this. But I wonder if the events of current times are getting to you. Maybe personal, maybe political. Could be a whole host of different reasons. Economic. Relational. I want you, I can't force you, I can't make you get this. But I want you to see, here's what the Lord says to me this morning. I am as a garden enclosed. And in that garden there is a spring shut up, a fountain sealed. Nothing can get in to pollute the joys, the life of the Spirit's work in my heart. There's a source for her personally to be productive. But also there's a source for her publicly to be productive. Because in verse 15, the water is, in the language of a fountain of gardens, a well of living waters and streams. So you have a well of living waters and streams. I conclude, therefore, that not only does the Spirit live in the believer to nourish their own hearts... But the Holy Spirit uses the believer as a conduit to reach others. They are like wells and streams. They flow. They flow into other parts of the world. They're placed in certain parts of the world to be drawn and experienced by the world. Again in John 15, verse 26 and 27, when the Comforter is come, the Holy Spirit, I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. And ye also shall bear witness. So his coming will be to testify. But how does he do so? He will do it through us as we bear witness to the world. And so Acts 1 verse 8, Ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me. You're going to be a witness. You're going to be in this world, and you will be a witness to this world. So I have given you if we can look at it this way, I have given you all you need to exist in the world within your own heart to be sustained in joy, but actually also to influence the world, to, to, to move the joys of the truths that change your lives into the world around you. I haven't so enclosed you in so that you have no influence on the world. Quite the contrary. While you're a garden enclosed, there's also a reach that you have beyond. The Spirit's work in your life will go beyond. They will be living waters. They will be streams. I've said to you before, I say again, in fact, I could should probably say this every week. <laughs> when you leave this place, Christian, when you leave this place, you are entering your mission field. Wherever the providence of God has you, in the home, mission field. In employment, mission field. In the community, mission field. Doesn't matter. When you leave this place, mission field. The Lord has given you the Spirit in order to do that. 
So we have seen the sources of our productivity. It is both within, within and without. But notice, notice also that part of this also, as, as it works within her, is to bring forth fruit. And if you look at verses 13 and 14, you can see, develop what I said a moment ago I would get back to, the fruitfulness of her life. Her true productivity is signified by the language of verses 13 and 14. Thy plants are in an orchard of pomegranates with pleasant fruits, camphor with spikenard, spikenard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, with all the chief spices. It's a poetic description of what's going on in the garden. This is Song of Solomon's version of Galatians chapter 5. Turn there for a moment, Galatians 5. Very quickly. Galatians 5 verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance or strife, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies. You have all these these reflections of the flesh in their false worship, their hatred and anger, verse 21 continues, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. It's, a lot of them are overlapping. Different kind of nuanced ways of, of similar sins. But th- this is what we see in the world. This is manifest. And so he says, of the which I tell you before as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. These are, these are manifest evidences that you're not in this garden. You aren't this garden. You're not part of this garden. But, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. So, so you have the fruit of the Spirit. Note the singular, fruit of the Spirit, works of the flesh. The works of the flesh, you can have one without the other. Someone can be an idolater without being a murderer. But the fruit of the Spirit, you can't. You can't. If you have the fruit of the Spirit, you're going to have a measure of love, a measure of joy, a measure of peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. You will have a measure of all of that. Those nine things, you will have a measure of them. I hope you do. And when you come back to Song of Solomon chapter 4, the named plants, so you have pomegranates, you have camphor, you have spikenard, you have saffron, you have calamus, you have cinnamon, you have frankincense, you have myrrh, you have aloes. Nine. Same as the fruit of the Spirit. Nine. I don't know if that's intentional, but certainly the Spirit of God makes no accidents. The name things. And this is, this is a picture, beloved. It's a picture of the fruit of the Spirit. We've been thinking of that. that the, these, this fountain within the life, this spiritual work within the heart, it produces. And it produces part of what is greatest emphasis is on what we find in Galatians 5. It has produced fruit. It's the change how you live. This is the productivity of the church, the life of the Spirit in every Christian. Thirdly then, the church is pleasant. The church is pleasant. Not only protected and productive, but it is pleasant. Verse 16. Awake, O north wind, and come thou south. Blow upon my garden, that the spices thereof may flow out. Let my beloved come into his garden and eat his pleasant fruits. The bride is pleasant to the bridegroom. We've seen that already in this chapter. 
But I want us to want to notice two things here before we close. First, Christ wants her pleasantness to be diffused to the world. He wants her pleasantness to be diffused to the world. Awake, O north wind, and come thou south. Blow upon my garden, that the spices thereof may flow out. Since it is described as my garden, I take it that this is the bridegroom speaking. She belongs to him, since he, he, he has described her as a garden, verse 12. Then when he says, my garden, he's saying, my bride. And so this is the bridegroom. The bridegroom is offering a prayer, a desire. Awake, O north wind, and come thou south. Blow upon my garden, that the spices thereof may flow out. So you have this desire. You have the mediator praying, interceding. And he intercedes in such a way so that the language is what we have in verse 16 with an emphasis on what? Wind. North wind, south wind, blowing upon the garden. Now what's the wind? We've already considered that the Holy Spirit is described often as water, but it is also often described as a wind or as breath. Going back as far as Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. So there's a sense in which breath brings life. You remember the valley of dry bones? Is that not what's emphasized there as well? In Ezekiel chapter 37, I'll read from verse 7 and following. You'll, many of you will be familiar with this vision that Ezekiel was given. Ezekiel 37 verse 7, So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a noise, and behold, a shaking, and the bones came together, bone to his bone. And when I beheld, lo, the sinews and the flesh came up upon them, and the skin covered them above, but there was no breath in them. Then said he unto me, Prophesy unto the wind, prophesy, son of man, and say to the wind, Thus saith the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived, and stood up upon their feet an exceeding great army. So you have the, the, the idea that the Spirit brings life, and it is depicted as wind. This again is further developed by the Lord Jesus in John chapter 3, verse 8, The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, and whether it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. The Spirit, therefore, is likened to the wind that blows in places you cannot control, and you don't know where he's going next, but he moves just as surely as the wind moves. Or as Jesus spoke to his disciples in John 20 after his resurrection, he breathed on them and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. So there's a, there's a pulling together of breath and the Spirit and the life that the Spirit gives. And so it's not surprising then when that answer comes, that is the Spirit coming upon the church in Acts 2, Suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. So you have this idea of wind. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. So I'm trying to quickly pull this together before we close. So you see, beloved, that when you have this prayer, the intercessory prayer of the bridegroom in verse 16, Awake, O north wind, and come thou south, blow upon my garden, that the spices thereof may flow out. This is Christ praying as he prays now. It is for the Spirit to be poured out upon the church. It is for the ongoing activity of the Spirit. Since He has ascended, He has sent the Spirit. And the Spirit is to come on the church in ever-increasing experiences of power. You can see it so clearly patterned. As the Spirit made man alive in the beginning, and as the Spirit regenerates man in the new birth, the Spirit then also makes the church alive for service in the world. Without the Spirit, our work in the world is vain. And the Lord Jesus knows that. He doesn't say go, just, just go. He doesn't just say go, does He? Does He tell you just to go? No, no He doesn't. 
He says, tarry in Jerusalem until what? You be endued with power from on high. And he told them already that if I go, I go to the Father to send the Comforter that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. So I go to send a wind. And he there at the right hand of the Father prays for the wind of the Spirit upon the church. How may he not leave us without it? This is the greatest need of our day. There's nothing more we need than a fresh wind from heaven. Lord Jesus, see our hearts. The winds come with different features at times. There's the north wind, the south wind. Depending where you are in the world, north winds and south winds can be very different. And so, in most part of the northern hemisphere, a north wind means it's chilly. South wind means it's warm. You go to the southern hemisphere, like we were in Australia, and they would talk about a northerly. And when they say a northerly is coming, it means there's a desert wind coming, and you better stay inside. It's going to get very unpleasant. But there are different winds. But it's the same activity. It's the Spirit working through the church in the world. Sometimes the Spirit may use the preaching of the church. Other times the Spirit may use the persecution of the church. Both of them to reach the world. But this is what he prays. Awake, O north wind, and come thou south, and blow upon my garden, that the spices thereof may flow out. I want there to be this pleasantness enjoyed and distributed across the world. So, we have seen this, that Christ wants our pleasantness to be diffused to the world. But let's close with this. The church wants her pleasantness to be enjoyed by Christ. The church wants her pleasantness to be enjoyed by Christ. Let my beloved come into his garden and eat his pleasant fruits. She invites the Lord to come in. She doesn't want to have all this without him. What good is a holy life without the presence of Jesus Christ? What good is being fruitful of a certain form without the nearness of our God? Is there any? Are we happy with an externalized religion? Are we happy with the mere form? Are we happy simply to have the Spirit work in us and conform us to Christ but not know the actual presence of Christ? Now, I don't believe that's possible, but if it was, if it was, that you could have the sanctifying influence of the Spirit and you could have the Spirit working to influence the world around you through your life, but you had no sense of fellowship Would you be happy? I don't think so. I don't think so. So seeing all that Christ has provided, he's made us a garden. He's enclosed us in. He's protecting us from enemies without and the sins within. He sends a spirit to give life, to make us productive. He has all of that. All of these blessings, everything we've focused upon really by and large is about what he has done, laying claim to us and working through us and sending his spirit. And our response, what is it? Lord Jesus, come. Come into the garden. Come to your church. Come and take the credit for the fruit. Come and take credit for our lives. Come and be working through our lives so that people see you in us. And we want your nearness, Lord. We want your presence above everything else. So we say, we say this morning, even as we sit at the table, let my beloved come into his garden. Come, Lord. Come in to this garden. Sit at this table. Dine with us.
I trust you're a part of this garden. I hope you're a part of the church. That you're saved. You know the Lord. You know him. I have to say, (laughs) if you're not saved, I imagine everything we've dealt with this morning just seems meaningless. So I guess one way of prodding at our own hearts would be, is all of that meaningless to me? It's not to the born-again child of God. It's not to those who have life. Oh, to see what the Lord has done for us. To be His garden, wherein He dwells and produces fruit. May the Lord do it more and more for His name's sake. Let's pray. Lord, be with us this morning as we continue to meditate on these things. As we come to your table, as we realize that our greatest need is to have more of the Lord Jesus walking in our lives. Lord, I'm so even scared at this very moment that we will come to this table and We'll miss, we'll miss the fact that you're here. Please don't let that be. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Take the bulletin again.